I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The following podcast is a member of the Great Big Owl family. This will certainly have an adult theme and might well contain strong scenes of sex or violence, which could be quite graphic. It may also contain some very explicit language, which will frequently mean sexual swear words. What do you like listening to? Um, <laughs> chart music. <laughs> chart music. David, do the windmill now. Oh, you too smooth guy. Now on your head. Yes. Oh, hey, you pop crazy youngsters, and welcome to the final part of chart music, episode number fifty-six. I'm your host, Al Needham. I'm wearing my chilly duds, my leather belt with all the studs. I called all my friends and had a break dance party. But now, let us roll up the lino, plonk us back onto the settee, and get stuck into the final furlong of the 1983 Christmas Top of the We go back to April of this year, number one in this country, number one in the States, on the title track of a great album, David Bowie, and here is Let's Dance. Put on your red shoes and dance the blues. To the song playing on the radio. Wants to take us all the way back to April for the title track of a great album. It's Let's Dance by David Bowie. We covered David Bowie in the last episode of Chart Music when RCA slipped out his duet of Little Drummer Boy slash Peace on Earth with Bing Crosby in late 1982, and this is the sort of follow up. While the pop craze youngsters are watching Bowie and Bing being all awkward over the piano in the last proper Top of the Pops of 1982, he was in Mountain Studios in Montreux knocking out the demo of this single. It's his first release for his new label, EMI, after he signed with them for $17.5 million, which is nearly $46 million in new money, and it's the lead cut off the LP of the same name. It was put out in March of this year, immediately smashed into the charts at number five, and two weeks later, it grabbed Is There Something I Should Know and threw it off the cliff of pop. And here's the video 
which was directed by David Mallet, who had done the videos of Hanging on the Telephone for Blondair, Rat Trap and I Don't Like Mondays for the Boomtown Rats, Emotional Rescue and She's So Cold for the Rolling Stones, Run to the Hills by Iron Maiden, and practically all of Bowie's videos since Boys Keep Swinging. You could make a strong case that David Bowie was the biggest artist of 1983, don't you think? Well, it's uh, it's the it's the high point of his career commercially, I believe, mm. um, especially in America. Yeah, it's, it's funny, really, that the uh, era of his career, which Bowie fans often consider the least Bowie-like, is the one by mm. which most people know him. Yeah. yeah, and this, I mean, probably his last great single. I mean, unless you count the Black Star stuff, but by then the whole definition of what a single was had changed completely. You know. Uh, mm. And it's simultaneously pure contemporary pop and sort of weird and uncommercial. And like I say, where Heaven 17 can be seen to labour in pulling that off, uh, Bowie just sort of strolls in at almost 40 and just does it seemingly without effort. Mm. Although, you know, there will have been like the swan on the pond a lot of thrashing feet just out of sight when he thought, including a lot of other people's feet, uh, as always. But that's yeah. the beauty of it. You'd never know, you know. I mean, if there's one mm. criticism you can make of this record, it's that it's maybe too smooth um, and feels effortless to a fault, you know, compared to previous Bowie records. But I love it. And even though it points the way so clearly to his shittest period, and his shittest period was absolutely a continuation of what he's doing on this record um, and an mm. attempt to capitalise on its American success. But I remember this being a hit, and it worked perfectly for me as a kid of, uh, what, 10, 11, in terms of the blend of the weird and the commercial. As a kid who was already used to freaky pop stars singing weird lyrics, mm. and I could tell straight away there was something freaky about this in a slightly more grown-up way you know in a good way yeah. as well as a bad way uh but totally different from what the other older generation rock stars were doing at this point you know this was not tug of war by paul mccartney um and you couldn't quite put your finger on what was odd about it but there was clearly some kind of unearthly sheen on the whole thing right in the same way that david mm. bowie sort of looked like a, a staid unhungry rock millionaire by this point and sort of looked like a monster mm. you know it's you, you heard that brian ferry was meant to be weird but when you heard avalon mm. and you saw the video it was like a bmw advert you know whereas yeah. you could tell that this wasn't you could tell that this was something different but you kind of knew maybe you'd have to be 14 or 15 before you could hazard a guess as to what it actually was but you know and yet everyone's mum was whistling it. It was also around the time that everyone's mum seemed to fancy David Bowie. It was an <laughs> odd development. I think a lot of that came from Merry Christmas, Mr Lawrence. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I've got to disagree with Taylor about this being his last great single. I mean, for a start, off this same album, you've got Modern Love, yeah. which is yeah. fantastic. Oh, really? It's all um, right. And then, and then off, I mean, I, I guess when you're talking about his shit period, you, you mean the album Tonight. And I guess... Um, uh, the one after was never never let yeah, me down. Yeah. Um, even off tonight, you've got Blue Jean, which I think is amazing. Mm -hmm. um, 
absolute beginners. I'll stand up for that. And uh, then mm. in the nineties, Little Wonder, Hello Space Boy, stuff like that. You know, he, he did some really good singles. Yeah, those are all good Absolutely. singles, but I just I don't think they are in the same category as this or in the same class as this and i think although this isn't as good as the you know the best 70s singles you can put it in a box with them and they won't eat it you know hmm. I, I love the story of how nile rogers got together with with him to to do yeah. all this have we have we talked about that on chart music before with, uh, billy idol yeah yeah have we done it quick recap simon Go so on. yeah it's in um nile rogers amazing um uh, autobiography le freak which everybody ought to read uh, and it's a story about when Nile was, shall we say, partying very hard, and so was Billy Idol, and uh, they were mm. hanging out in some upscale celebrity bar in New York. Um, Billy Idol had just vomited over his own hands, and then the pair of them noticed <laughs> David Bowie over in the corner. It's like, oh my god, oh my god, it's David Bowie, and uh, they go over and uh, <laughs> he introduced himself and like shakes Bowie's hand with his vomity palm and um, oh but that that's how it, why do people do that yeah. though gonna catch it and not spill a drop and deposit <laughs> it somewhere no it's it's futile <laughs> so yeah um i but i guess you know bowie's could hardly look at uh, a coked up nile rogers and billy idol and think oh that sort of behavior is disgraceful <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> i'll tell you what amazes me though about david bowie one of the most impressive things about the man Everyone knows that he had that insane coke habit for a few years and he moved out of LA to get away from that environment. What a lot of people don't realise is he didn't completely stop. He just became a social Mm. cocaine user. Like, he'd have a bit if he was out or if it was like a party on tour. Fucking hell. Nice work. It's like he just wouldn't sit in his house all day doing it on his own. You know what I mean? It's like that is impressive, yeah. It's ridiculous. It's like one day you're on your back in Beverly Hills with a a dump truck of cocaine unloading into a kitchen funnel with the thin end going into your schnoz for about two years. And then all of a sudden you're like, I can take or leave it now. You know, it's like, who does that? Those, and it's those levels of mental discipline and self-control, you know, I mean, it's too easy and and glib to say that those levels of mental discipline and self-control are how this, ultra derivative super fan whose early artistic judgment might be described as questionable ended up making all these incredible records but i mean there's a lot of people with talent who aren't naturals right who can't just walk into a studio and just spew up incredible original music almost by instinct which bowie couldn't and most of them never do anything good because they can't arrange mm. their own brains in the right way to let their talent flow out of them. Whereas David Bowie could do that, and he did. Um, and in its mm. way, that's as amazing as just being one of those people like Captain Beefheart, who just sort of walks into a studio and it's like, fucking hell, what have you just done? Oh, it, it was nothing, <laughs> you know. Bowie always worked on everything he did, but... In a way, that's almost harder. Yeah. It's interesting hearing how much Taylor loves this record, because... Obviously, it's undeniably good. I'm not somebody who really believes that music can ever be um, sort of quantified in an objective manner. But to the extent that it it, it maybe can, something like Let's Dance is kind of undeniable. To me, it's it's in that category, along with Heart of Glass that I mentioned earlier, of a record that I I recognise its quality. I find it hard hard to love. Um, And Mm. I, I am somebody who 
worships at the altar of Nile Rogers. Um, and uh, also, I'm a fairly regular club and party DJ, and I know that if you put this record on, just the shameless, cynical way it starts with that Beatles, ah, yes. or Rubets, if you prefer, um, uh, <laughs> which, you know, obviously I do. Or, or let's go to the hop. All right, yeah, 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 um, at, at the beginning there. Um, it's just shameless. It's like grabbing you by the balls, like, boom, here it is. And you've got that gorgeous Nile Rodgers guitar tone, this sort of jangling motif that goes through it. But it's quite slow. It's quite a slow. It, it's got a sl- mm. slight plodding element to it. The melody can almost hide that. You almost f- forget how how ploddy it is. But it's yeah. It needs to pick up its heels a little bit. I think. Yeah. It, it, it's me. It's me. Simon Price telling Nile Rogers how to write a fucking hit. You know. <laughs> yeah, but for a self-proclaimed dance record, that is a low BPM. Yeah. 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 At the time, I knew loads of serious Bowie heads of all different ages, yeah. and this came out. I think to myself, oh, what are they going to make of this? And they were just like, yes, he's back. Yeah. Their levels of fandom were like proper football support. Oh, it's like, oh, yeah, we've yeah, lost yeah. Keegan, but here's Dog Leash. Yeah. And, of course, you know, it was helped by the video. Yeah. I place it alongside Billie Jean for its impact. Yeah. We've spoken earlier about Men at Work and, you know, Australia sort of uh, becoming a thing in pop for a short time. Here we are again. Here we are in Australia. Two very different depictions of Australian culture, aren't they? Men at Work and David Bowie here. Um, Because this one actually pretends to meaning something other than just being a parade of of cultural cliches, which Men at Work are obviously having fun with. But yeah, this... um, The meaning of this, which I maybe didn't even pick up on at the time, but now I look at it and it's... It's not as if it was ever subtle. It's quite sort of on the nose. Um, it's this mm. conflict between native cultures and Western civilization yeah. that's, that's yeah. going on, that, that you've got the Aboriginal guy pulling a piece of factory machinery down the middle of the road, you know, mm. and um, the girl putting on the... Yeah, being shouted at by people who are clearly not actors. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and uh, you've, you've got, you've got the, um, the, the, the girl putting on the fancy red shoes. And I've got to say that... I, I've got this kind of shudder that still to this day I hated the way that her toe crinkles up when she puts the shoe on. It's some, <laughs> it, used, it used to really freak me out. She, it, her toe goes all wrinkly and crinkled up when she put it on. And I just remember looking at I don't know. Um, that, that's just me. Uh, I, but it's it's just one of these things that you cannot shake. It just whenever I hear that record, this, that's that's what I think mm. of. But yeah, and there's there's the bit where the the couple are in the. Uh, modern art museum and there's there's a couple of picassos on the wall and they are there crouching on the floor painting a more kind of traditional aboriginal thing mm. of a snake aren't they and it, it's it's all these kind of conflicts between you know ab- aboriginal culture and and the sort of white settler culture plus the, mm. plus the obligatory but slightly meaningless to the plot nuclear explosion in the distance because <laughs> ah, <laughs> it's yeah. the 80s you've got to have a mushroom yes. cloud but it's a happy nuclear explosion isn't it because they're in australia so they're going oh look oh, the rest of the world's fuck we're all right yeah the thing with this it's not just this video but this episode in general we all know what muscle memory means you know the psychological theory that if you do the same action enough times it becomes mm. second nature do you remember there was the, the idea was popularized a lot of people by this advert for bbc sport featuring andy cole mm. andy cole repeating this particular move which you then see him using the same move to score for man united and and it's also something that dancers have this muscle memory yeah and watching this episode top the pops has made me realize that there's such a thing as muscle memory by proxy 
because yes. 1983 was a very dancey year. I, I, I don't just mm. mean in the sense that dance music was breaking through. Although it was, we, we really had IOU by Freeze. This was also the mm. year of Rocket by Herbie Hancock and various other things. Mm. Uh, we discussed Rocket in another episode, of course, um, both hugely important records. But I mean, it was a dancey year in the Terpsichorean sense. Yes. And dance, if you will. Dance, yes. That's where the muscle memory by proxy idea comes in for me because the, it's not just this video. There were so many exact body movements in this episode which are imprinted on my memory. Yeah. And as, as I said earlier, I didn't have a VHS recorder, so they had to really make their imprint when they could. Mm. There, there's the bit in Billie Jean where Michael Jackson's on this dystopian litter-swept kind of yellow brick road with his, his legs apart, and he just pulses his legs a couple of times and just that movement mm. it's just it's almost like a like a gif or gif as you're supposedly meant to say it mm. um in my brain that just loops over and over there's the guys and men at work stamping up and down in the sand really quickly yes. like like there's seagulls tapping for w- worms really huge worms that be in australia <laughs> probably yes. like ken russell lair of the white worm sized Yo, you know uh, yeah 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 <laughs> there's 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 the bare-chested guys prancing around outside bonnie tyler's haunted mansion there's mm. Jennifer Beals doing those very mechanical iron pumping moves in front of a really bright spotlight, flash dance. There's mm. there's this particular way Simon Le Bon throws his right fist outwards in in yes. in Duran Duran's is there yeah, something yeah. I should know. There's Lionel Richie looking a bit uneasy as he's stepping from <laughs> the floor to the wall as in this rotating living room. So that there are all these things, just dance moves, just moves that mm. um, are just so ingrained in my mind. But in, in this video, after the girl has put on, uh, put the red shoes onto her wrinkly toe, she does this particular little bit of boogieing as they're walking away. Mm. And that little dance there, it's like, that's it for, for me, this song. And yeah. I almost, you know, that's the way in which this song has to be danced to almost. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's a funny thing, though, this video. Um, it's, on the one hand, it's really good in that it's very professional by the standards of 1983 this is a really well directed video yeah and it at least sort of tries to say something about the tangled relationship between you know the first world and the rest but no normal person can resist a bit of a laugh after the noble peasants find the shoes Mm. and Immediately, there's a nuclear experience. <laughs> <laughs> a mushroom. Cloud. Oh, what a blow for them! Yeah. But it's like it's true, like you say, mushroom clouds in eighties pop videos were basically what locked the earth to the sky mm-hmm. and yeah. stopped it floating away. But it's a funny thing because, like, you compare this to the Duran Duran video. Lovable doofuses like Duran Duran always seem very aware of how funny their shit was. Mm. You know, like how kind of silly and they'd play up to it for a laugh um whereas Bowie was a you know a vastly better artist and more talented and all that sort of stuff and the originator of all this bilge in a way mm. you know always seemed oblivious when he was in close proximity to silly kitsch yeah um which is strange and I don't know why that was mm. but there's there's sort of dotted through his career there's just moments where david bowie appears to have no artistic judgment at all this man who kind of could if you sat down privately with him you could have a two-hour conversation about like any era of of painting or you know sort of early experimental films of the 1920s yeah. you know he 
knew about all this stuff and yet he still would dress as a Piero clown yes. <laughs> and he would still have a fucking mushroom cloud in his video. Funny you should say that, Taylor, because I got into a conversation once with a mate of a mate who was a, a designer on a really high-end art magazine. You know one of them magazines yeah. that cost like 30 quid and the cover's yeah. so glossy you could fucking ice skate on it. And uh, he'd be uh, working there... Um, you know, him and the rest of the staff would be working on the magazine and they would get about seven or eight phone calls a day from David Bower, who was just bored and wanted to talk to him about art. Oh, my God. <laughs> it got to the point where it's like, oh, fucking Bowie's on the phone again. Can someone just talk to him? Because I'm, I'm on a fucking deadline here. Jesus. Best we got was an angry Phil Collins wanting to th- threaten legal action. Or <laughs> Okay, now. Yeah, yeah, so the video was shot at the Corinda Hotel in Corinda and the Warrumbungle National Park, right. uh, both of which are in New South Wales. And the see, opening scene where they're playing at the bar, apparently they just announced while they were setting up the cameras and everything, oh, uh, does anyone want to come into the bar? Because um, David Bowie's going to be miming to his latest record. And apparently there's only one or two people who actually knew who David Bowie was. Yeah. <laughs> we see their uncomprehending stares. But that's probably because there's two non-white people in the bar for the first time ever. Right. The only time you ever saw an Aborigine on the on the telly was, you know, as an extra in Skippy or something like that. Yeah. A walkabout. Yeah. Yeah, or as backup to Rolf Harris. Yes. Yeah, true. Going back to what Taylor was saying about um, Bowie um, being quite happy to place himself next to, you know, or, 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 uh, or oblivious to his proximity to Kitsch. The other thing that he doesn't seem to mind doing is looking really fucked. Because I think in this video, <laughs> mm. I think he doesn't look well. No. He, he may have been well. He may have been completely clean that time. Maybe it's just like a very sweaty, hot, humid day in uh, in New South Wales. But he looks like a man in the grip of a fever leaning against the wall there. Um, and he's he's mm. not... He, I, I suppose, historically, he, he hadn't been afraid. For a very beautiful man, he hadn't been afraid of looking ugly when the work called for it. Like obviously he you know, mm. appeared in the Elephant Man and and yeah. and, and Baal and buried up to his neck. Yeah, yeah, of course, yeah. Um, and and even his own video for "Be My Wife" is probably when he looked the most fucks. But that was probably real. That was probably genuine. Yeah, yeah. yeah I just I, I I look at this and just think, mate, are you okay? <laughs> But yes, yeah, Simon, as you've said about Live Aid, you know, the, the day that the dinosaurs came roaring back, here's, here's the first thud, isn't it, of the, of the enormous claw. I suppose it is, but does Bowie get a special pass for never really having been away? Um, notwithstanding what Taylor said about mm. him not really being a sort of chart figure for the first couple of years. of uh... Yeah, it was a cause for celebration that David Bowie was back, yeah. wasn't it? Certainly coming back in that sort of chart-conquering number one way, I suppose... Um, as long as you weren't the sort of Bowie fan who thought, oh, fuck this commercial pap, then then you yeah. would have been... Yeah, be, be more gay, David. Yeah, Come I on. suppose you would have been cheering him on. Like, you know, It may not be our Bowie, but it's Bowie at number one, and there's something to celebrate about that, yeah. I dug up a clip from the BBC from about seven years ago where the owners of that bar that's in the video were um, that they, they, they were going to um, try and get more people in because they've only got about 120 population in that place. Yeah. They're going to try and get more people in by turning it into a David Bowie theme bar. Right. <laughs> that is yeah. a long way to go yeah. for, a, for a drink surrounded by pictures of David Bowie. Yes. They should, yeah, they do, they're going to have waxworks of all those people. 
Or just stuff them. Yeah. They should have all the people in the video, when they die, they stuff them and put them in the bar and animatronicise them, if you will. Yeah, and every day at 3pm exactly, they arrange for a nuclear bomb to go off <laughs> yes. on the other side of the hill. Yeah. <laughs> Australia's a big enough place, they can manage yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. I was thinking about this the other day, actually, because I've been watching um, the gloriously trashy TV series Married at First Sight Australia. Um, right. And uh, in the episode I just watched, they go to the Gold Coast, which um, isn't a region apparently, but an actual city. I had no idea. Um, and uh, uh, in the background, you can see that there is a Hard Rock Cafe Gold Coast. Now, right. um, as I understand it, Hard Rock Cafe, obviously it's a global chain, but they mm. try and have at least a few bits of genuine rock and roll memorabilia yeah, uh, in there so that people go in there. Oh, it's a bit special. Look, there's, yeah. I don't know, the, the, there's there's the guitar that Chris Rea played driving home for Christmas on or something, yeah. right? There's men without hats, hats. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so you know, I, I I guess every continent needs its you know little little sort of uh, meccas of uh, rock and roll mm. uh, realness, and and that bar in uh, a place I'm not even going to attempt to pronounce. Maybe maybe that could be, be one. Have, have they actually done it, or they were thinking of doing it? I don't know. That's uh, pretty low levels of research there, Al. I thought you'd have got a yeah. quick flight. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> quick, quick flight and a cab ride. And, uh, yeah. 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 and a journey on a kangaroo. <laughs> so, Let's Dan spent three weeks at number one, knocked off its perch by True by Spandau Ballet. It would go on to sell just over 900,000 copies in the UK, making it his biggest selling single here. The follow-up, a cover of China Girl, the song he wrote with Iggy Pop in 1977, got to number two, held off number one by every breath you take. Mm -hmm. And he closed out 1983 when Modern Love also made it to number two in October, denied its place at number one by Karma Chameleon. of the charts at the moment in the top 20 but their biggest hit single this year was a number one cover version of an old Neil Diamond song here are UB40 and Smith Surrounded by assorted office girls, many in big, nasty, nasal cavity caving in 80s glasses, wishes us a Merry Christmas and tells us that the next band are currently in the charts with a good single. But we're getting this one instead. It's Red Red Wine by UB40. Formed in Birmingham in 1978, UB40 were a multiracial reggae band who were named, as we all know, after unemployment benefit Form 40. A year later, they were discovered at a pub gig by Chrissy Hind, who booked them as a support act for the Pretenders UK tour of early 1980, at the same time as they signed to the local independent label Graduate Records. The debut single, the double-A side King slash Food for Fort, immediately scampered up the charts, getting to number four for two weeks in April of 1980, becoming the first indie single to breach the top ten, which encouraged them to set up their own label, DEP International. 
By the end of 1981, they had racked up three more top ten hits with My Way of Thinking, slash I Think It's Going to Rain, The Earth Dies Screaming, slash Dream a Lie, and One in Ten. Diminishing returns set in in 1982, however, and by February of this year, their ninth single, I've Got Mine, only got to number 45, their first single not to make the proper charts. Under pressure by their label's parent company Virgin to deliver a fourth studio LP in three years, they elected to do a covers album called Labour of Love. This is the lead cut from that LP, a cover of the 1967 Neil Diamond single, which Jimmy James and the Vagabonds took to number 36 in October of 1968, but the version the band were using was the 1969 cover by Tony Tribe, which got to number 46 in August of 1969. It entered the chart at number 36 in late August, then soared 25 places to number 9, and a week later it jumped all the way to number one, displacing Give It Up by KC and the Sunshine Band. And here they are in the studio. Ugh. One word, jaw waddy waddy. <laughs> yeah. 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 I fucking hate this song. It's, it, 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 yeah. it's terrible. It's really sad. I mean, I was a huge, huge fan, of, and I was about 17, 18, of UB40 yes. when they were coming through at that time. And I saw them as coming from the sort of same deep, spacey sort of dub place as a lot of the kind of post-punk things, you know, that one, you order, even Bauhaus and stuff like that in a way, you know. Mm. And, you know, obviously they were kind of searing a very explicitly and very, you know, very melancholy in their sort of politics and their kind of rage about the earth dying screaming and Martin Luther King mm. and stuff like that. And so this comes along, and to me, it, it, it would have felt like a kick in the teeth, like Joy Division, Ian Curtis living on, and eventually going on and doing a cover of Sweet Caroline. Yes. Something like that. It was... Yes, um, exactly. Know, I mean, and I felt personally betrayed at the time. I was, you know... I mean, you know, I'm prepared at this point. I'm running a nightclub with regular attendances of zero. You know, I've got my principles. Um, and they've gone over to the other side. I remember, like, watching this on Top of the Pops, and my mum's tapping along to this with a slippered Ugh. foot, and I just thought, this is betrayal. You people have you've self-lobotomised. It's Brexit reggae, isn't it? It's fucking reggae. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. This yeah. is the first time that UB40 have popped up on Chop Moves. I was really hoping it would be one of their early singles, because yeah. I totally agree with you, David. Mm. I really wanted to point out how fucking brilliant this band were. Yeah. And yes, when this came out, it felt like an absolute betrayal. And also, yeah. it kind of wipes out the memory of like the early group that they were. Yes. I mean, you know, it's funny, because I, I, I interviewed them, actually, later on in Jamaica. In, I went out to Jamaica interviewed them, about 1998 it would have been. I remember, you know, I was talking about the early stuff, and Ali Campbell's just sitting there laughing. He's happy, you know, about under heavy manners, yeah, King, and Chide and Passyford. Oh, my God. Horrible dramatics. <laughs> it's like, no, that was really good stuff. You know, he just thought of it as adolescent misery, you know, in terms of his sort of scheme of things. Maybe he's being self deprecated. <sighs> yeah. Their cover of I Got You, Babe, is the real deal. <laughs> oh, yeah, yes. Sure. One thing it did remind me of, actually, is like a lot of people of that generation, you know, your Jar Wobbles, your Marky Smith. And whatever, Ali Campbell, whatever. They were kind of like, you know, working class kids who had a really good sort of turn of phrase and a lot of energy in interviews and a lot of attitude and great in terms of copy in that respect. You know, even by 1998, they still had that. They were they were kind of trying to recover some of their sort of reggae integrity at that point. Yeah, good luck. Um, in terms of the activities and stuff that they were doing, you know, the people that were working with and whatever, et cetera, et cetera. 
Um, but yeah, they still had that kind of natural sort of abrasion about them. So it was very entertaining because, you know, I was used to, you know, being used to, the, you know, when I came in, I was interviewing you kind of My Bloody Valentines and Dinosaur Juniors and, and they just didn't have a kind of two words to sort of rub together between them. You know, it was terrible. So it was great. You know, it was always great, you know, to come back and interview people from that immediate sort of post-punk era. Mm. They just had so much more about them interview-wise. The only grim thing that happened on that trip was, you know, they do like to sort of, I mean, you know, smoking about a pound of dope a day or something <laughs> like Ali Campbell or whatever. And they were all utterly stoned. And I remember like one morning I was supposed to go out and join them at their place. Me and the other j- journalists, and kind of like, we were staying at... Um, I think it was a, one of Noel Coward's properties out there that we converted into a hotel. Right. And so went down to breakfast and got there late and they'd finished serving breakfast. So on an empty stomach, I had to go out to like the UB40's compound about 10, 15 miles away. And I'm fucking starving, you know, like oh. three or four hours. And like, and I said to them at one point, it says, do you have any food? <laughs> and Alice says, no, we have a woman that comes in about one o'clock with some ackee and rice, please. But uh, no. And everybody else is stoned. Like, look, I didn't do, I didn't do any of that stuff. You know, I didn't do. Everyone else is just crawling around like fucking idiots. You know, I thought, I thought this stuff was supposed to make you hungry. Yeah, and they were completely oblivious to appetite. And I've been five, six hours without food, no breakfast, now no lunch. And eventually, I had to steal into their house, into their big kitchen, look for food. <laughs> you know, I opened the kind of fridge door, and there's just a. St- Did you find a rat? <laughs> <laughs> I would have eaten that fucking rat, I would have tell you. There's a rat in my kitchen, I'll tell you what I'm going to fucking do with it. Yeah, absolutely. Wrap a cob round it. was nothing. Went to the fridge, opened the fridge door, and there was just like a jar of mustard. You know, your classic sort of bachelor thing. Oh. Eventually I went into another another room, and there was a display of like three or four day old bananas. Oh. And I just had to look around, and I just had to cram one of these overripe bananas. You know, unwrap it and just cram it into my gob. Just to keep going for the next 30 minutes until the woman came with the ackee and rice peas. And, um, you know, eventually she turned up. You know, I practically dived head first into the bloody pot. And uh, just about survived, but um, but yeah, it was nice, nice experience, you know, good good people. Yeah. I, and I was going to say, as Phil Oakey once pointed out, because I was talking to him in the press, he says, "Well, you know, they're a big, well, you know, they've got mouths to feed." And then, well, the fucking hell, they could do a better job of feeding fucking mouths than they did with me, you know? Yeah. <laughs> did they think you were a square because you don't ride the green horse? <laughs> I think possibly so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't think there was a calculated punishment though. The whole thing. It was just, yeah. <laughs> I think my only problem with UB40 is that I'm a reggae fan, mm. um, mm. and <laughs> when you think of all the British bands of the seventies and eighties, including UB40, as you say, for yeah. a while, who found reggae useful as a way to express certain feelings musically, and when you think about how intelligently. And sensitively, a lot of those groups took that music out of Jamaica, mm. like out of the, the high-pressure sunshine, and reset it in the, the slate-grey bleakness of Britain in the Aventis. Either playing reggae or just using bits of it, like ideas and elements of it, to break the straight lines of rock. You know, mm. It's a depressing thing to watch yeah. UB40 here. You know, not really that long after making decent records. Yeah. Turning into the sort of thing you'd expect to hear at Montego Bay Butlins. Yes. You know what I mean? Yes. Like doing four hours a night. <laughs> and yes. the other thing that bothers me about UB40, it's like vocal blackface, isn't it? It's black throat is what you do. <laughs> and I mean, mm. pretty much all pop music goes to that well. You know, and white singers have always tried to sound black to an extent. And 
almost all rock singing is is at least derived from something that a black vocalist did at some point mm. and it's daft to worry about that really and and when when black artists use string sections you know or jangling guitars nobody goes oh he's trying to rip off white music it's, mm. none of that is the issue it's just the fact that he's doing a fucking impression of a Jamaican accent mm. as if he wasn't literally standing next to a couple of black guys. Yeah. So mm. Does he not feel a bit self-conscious? Because I would. Mm. I mean, obviously, they, they're they not bothered because they're in a band with him. But to, to anyone watching, it's like... It's like Jim Davidson doing chalky white material <laughs> on deaf comedy <laughs> jam. You know what I mean? It's like... What's it, I don't know. I think in a way it would be worse if he was a really good singer and a charismatic front man. Mm. You know, it's like he's helped by the fact that he's a little nasal brummy urchin. Yeah. You know, who looks like he should be in a sausage. Because um, <laughs> it makes him seem curious and sort of rather than infuriating. But how much better all their records would have been if he'd just sang them in a, in a white brummy accent. You yes. Know, and just steered mm. clear of this fucking... Oh. Or even a Dave Waitlin type. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. 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 I mean, you can use the phrasing of reggae. If you're going to play pure reggae music, you can use the phrasing of reggae music without actually having to do the voice. I, I mean, the mm. other strike against UB40, post you and me theme tune UB40, here, that's where the blame can be put. <laughs> Everyone at school who was a cuntier was into UB40. Mm. Not all UB40 fans at school were cunts. But everyone who was a cunt was also a UB40 fan. Right. That's a universal thing because yeah. in the book, The Van by Roddy Doyle, set in 1990, which I was reading only recently, there's a group of cuntish lads called The Living Dead who spend all the time lobbing boulders at the <laughs> chip van that belongs to the central characters. Mm. And Roddy Doyle wrote, sometimes it wasn't rocks they threw, it was used up batteries from their ghetto blaster. All they ever played was UB40. Yeah. Nothing else. No. Ever. <laughs> Nail on head, sir. Yeah, I mean, I talk about just my mum tapping her foot to it. Yeah, it, you're right. I mean, now that you say it, it got worse than that. There was a similar sort of lesson thing with, with Simple Minds to me, actually, who I'd kind of sort of a 1982 New Gold Dream. Mm. And they came crashing right back down to sort of stadium rock earth. And then all of a sudden, yeah, the twats were all into Simple Minds. Yeah. 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 Speaking as a, as as one of the whitest men in the country, this is mm. more offensive to me than reggae like it used to be. Paul Nicholas <laughs> was just having a go at summer, right? Yeah. These people actually mm. understood and liked and loved reggae. Yeah. And then they come out with this shit. Yeah. Synthesized steel drum sounds. Fucking hell. <laughs> But yeah. this is it was stuff like this that really, really embittered me at the time and just made me feel that pop and rock and everything had absolutely mm. gone to seed and gone to the dogs. And, mm. you know, it was going to have to be Stockhausen and George Clinton from now on. Yeah. But the strange thing about this one, being a Neil Diamond song, right, this is mm. obviously it's only a reggae classic because it was covered by a load of Jamaican acts. Um, yeah. Who, as we've mm. said before, would do reggae versions of absolutely anything. Yes. Oh, yeah. Come on, feel the noise by Slade or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Really? Reggae version out there of that. Yeah. yeah. No. Yeah. Fucking. Hell. I've heard. A, I've heard a reggae version of um, Chirpy Chirpy Cheap Cheap. Oh yeah. By uh, by a Jamaican Pinky and Perker. Yeah, <laughs> but the, in this case, I would imagine they latched onto Red Red Wine because someone heard the guitar part on the Neil Diamond version, which is mm. sort of choppy and on the offbeat. You know, in 
what is otherwise a country ballad. And so suddenly there are various reggae versions which filter down to this, which is the worst version. Yeah. It's a nice enough song, but by this point it's it's not so good that it can survive being sat on by this musical Diana Dawes in the Sweeney falling ass first onto a wedding (laughs) cake, you know. I mean, if you listen to Tony Tribe's version, incidentally, we've always been told that the Tony Tribe version is what UB40 grew up with. It's actually Mm. the version that sounds the least like their version. Yes, um, yes. Which is much closer to the Tinga Stewart version. If you listen to Tinga Stewart's version of this... That's where you, UB40 seem to have got their arrangement from, not Tony Tribe at all. But Tony Tribe's version sounds really alive. It was obviously recorded in a pretty basic studio, but the sound mm. of it is almost uncanny. It's uh, human beings playing with that much discipline and precision yeah. while still sounding so loose and human. And they sound as if they're just over there mm. by the standard lamp playing straight at mm. you. You know what I mean? Whereas this UB40 record sounds like it's happening in another building. Mm. You know, like a, a much worse building than the one that you're in. Yeah. Even if the one that you're in is on fire. <laughs> um, so if you've never heard a reggae record, which I think may well have been true for quite a lot of the people who <laughs> bought this, it would sound fine because it's a catchy song. And if you like glassy early to mid 80s, pop there's nothing wrong with the record but i'm a reggae fan and all the Mm. things that i love about reggae are the complete opposite of what i'm hearing here yes in terms of the playing the sound the feel reggae is supposed to sound heavy for fuck's sake Mm. it's supposed Mm. to sound heavy it's not supposed to sound like this Mm. even when it's light it's supposed to sound heavy Mm. Now, I was going to digress, really. I mean, in terms of, like, if you want to do something populist, popular reggae, do something like Dennis Bavel doing Silly Games or whatever, mm. which he said he, he did it he did it just for the money, you know. He just turned it out. He yeah. knew it was a catchy little tune or whatever, but it's an absolute classic, you yeah. know. There's a glorious remix of that going around, which is like the Dennis Bavel dub version. It's on SoundCloud. I think it's Optima. I think it's, you know, it's spliced with the big sing-along you had in Small Axe or whatever, and it's just the most one of the most beautiful things I've heard all year. Yeah, mm. so I understand you before it being a bunch of, you know, a bunch of working class lads who probably found, look, you know, we've, we've got to do something. We've got to, you know, we're, we're in the shit here. You know, we've mm. got to just do something and hold our noses, you know, that's a bit kind of commercial or whatever. And, um, well, you know, um, but uh, they could have done better, I'm sure. Yeah. So Red Red Wine would spend three weeks at number one giving way to Karma Chameleon. Yes. The follow-up, a cover of Winston Groovy's 1970 single, Please Don't Make Me Cry, got to number 10 in November, and they finished up their comeback year with a cover of Jimmy Cliff's 1969 single, Many Rivers to Cross, which is currently at number 16, its highest position. I like that one. That's 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 all right. That's what they should have done. Mm. Ah, fuck them. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. I'm Mark Haynes, and for the last 32 years, I've been a fan of professional wrestling. My friend Pete Donaldson from the Football Ramble... He hasn't. But in our podcast, Wrestle Me, the two of us subject the greatest spectacle in sports entertainment, WrestleMania, to the kind of rigorous scrutiny that ruins it entirely. GQ called Wrestle Me enrapturing. Shortlist said it's beautiful. And it's a hit with common people, too, with well over 400 five star reviews on iTunes. Wrestle Me, available from all good podcast providers. Janice, next to a Duncan Norvell lookalike with an appalling yellow and blue dazzle jumper who she doesn't attempt to cop off with tells us that UB40 was one of the best gigs she's seen this year and then pivots to Uptown Girl by Billy Joel. We've covered Billy Joel a few times on chart music, including the time when Legs and Co. slinked it about to its still rock and roll to me, which got to number 14 in September of 1980. Since then, he's been in the UK chart as many times as I've been in Beyonce's knickers, with his next six singles all flopping over here, and his stock in this country declining to the point that his label didn't even bother to release Teller About It, the lead cut from his new LP, An Innocent Man, over here in the summer of 1983. In the wake of Teller about it getting to number one in America, however, the UK wing of CBS decided to take a punt on the follow-up, a shameless tribute to Frankie Valle. And what do you know, it entered the top 40 at number 25 in late October, then soared 18 places to number seven, and a week after that became the single that was big enough to dislodge Karma Chameleon after its six-week reign. Here's the video where Christy Brinkley drives into Joel's garage so she could be sung at by him and some other blokes who just so happen to be as short as he is. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I looked at Dazzle Jumper Man for fucking ages to ascertain whether it was Duncan Norvell or not because, you know, after the debacle of last episode <sighs> where we missed Peter Duncan and Simon Groomer Blue Peter awaiting the, the balcony sh- speech by Conrad Schickel. That was outraged, man. We, I apologise, Pop Crazy Youngsters. I Me have also. failed you. <laughs> oh, what's the other thing I cocked up as well? Yeah, I said E.T. liked M&M's and it was Reese's Pieces. So, yeah, there we go. The notes and corrections segment of chart music is over. 
we can attend to this song. <laughs> it's weird that CBS didn't put out Tell Her About It over here because, as we stated in the last episode, 60s revivalism, we were fucking all over that mm. run about this time. Yeah, yeah. And it's at its apex here, isn't it? This is the 60s slapping you across the face. It's a perfect Frankie Valley pastiche. Yes. It's it's uncanny. Um, Mm. Uncannily like a Frankie Valley in the Four Seasons record. With a great video. And it's a brilliantly catchy song. And yet, and yet, I still don't like Billy Joel. And I know this Mm. has brought me into conflict with um, other chart music contributors in the past. I think I saw it did Billy Joel. Had exactly the same thing where I think you and Pricey, Al, we loved, um, I can't remember which track it was. Tell her about, Tell her about it. it. That's right. And I, and I was kind of floundering him. I, I don't know. Shaking Sadaka. I've never, <laughs> it's just, and never also seen in the same room as Michael Keaton. I want to just register that. Ooh. But I was, I, I think the problem with this record for me anyway, is that I've never been into the scenario of feeling that I'm in the company of a group of men yakking about women. And I will yeah. actually avoid such scenarios because they just fill me with dread. I remember like a couple of years ago, I was in a staff room at work and men in that room started talking about who they fancied celebrity wise and stuff. And I, I'm sorry, guys, oh. I can't cope with that. I have to leave. I don't like that blokey kind of talking about women in a sense. It just makes me massively uncomfortable. It's just a bit too close to the biscuit game. Um, mm. And this whole song, is that scenario. It's Billy Joel showing off to his mates. And, you know, worse than that, basically, Billy Joel is as ugly as I am. And he's bragging <laughs> about shagging a supermodel. So, I mean, I remember mm. thinking at the time, you know, thinking you smug cunt. But I've since read interviews, you know. Billy Joel, I mean, I'll quote him directly here. He says, um, I read an interview where he said, so here I was, a rock star who was suddenly single. I took a vacation down in the Caribbean. I met Elle McPherson, Christy Brinkley and Whitney Houston all at the same moment in some little hotel bar. They were all down on the model shoot and I was just in the piano bar playing as time goes by. I looked up and there were these three gorgeous women looking at me from the other side of the piano. I looked back down at the piano and said, thank you. Being a singer is so great. What an incredible thing this is. I was squiring these models around. I dated Elle McPherson. Oh, I hate that. Squiring around. I know. Fuck off. Just to complete the quote, I dated Elle McPherson half a year before Christy. Then I was dating Christy Brinkley. And so the original song was Uptown Girls. I was just a, oh. I was just a pig in shit. I mean, <laughs> I suppose I should applaud the honesty, but fuck off, Joel. You know, I mean, yeah. I just, I, you know, I don't like men talking about women in a group like that anyway. So um, mm. I, I, I couldn't deny the fucking total and utter adherent catchiness of this song. It's a brilliantly crafted thing. But um, yeah. I resent it because <laughs> I just don't get on with Billy Joel. Convince me, yeah. The, the sentiments essentially all posh birds, they all want it off of them off a, on a garage floor, don't they? Pretty much, it, it, it's just, it's yeah. Look what I got despite just being an ordinary Joe. Um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> nothing except my love and my amazing songwriting talent, and my six grannies, yeah. and the proceeds from a multi platinum album. You know, it, it, it's, I don't know. Oh, Neil, go ahead with your own life, leave him alone. <laughs> <laughs> I tell, you, I tell you what I don't like about this whole thing is him trying to do the, the whole blue collar bit 
you know, or like yeah. 14-inch blue collar in his case. It's like, <laughs> it's like posing in a context that's so totally bourgeois, right, in the sense that mm. this record <clears throat> is pure indulgence and is created only to be bought and sold, you know, it is a fundamentally meaningless commodity. It's bourgeois art in the truest sense. That's all okay, but I don't like it when people do that while playing the regular Joe, mm. you know. So like, eh, I just, just got to mm. work, take my hard hat and my box of sandwiches. <laughs> it's like, no, <laughs> fuck off, you know. Yes. You know, and this video is like an attempt to do a heterosexual grease. Yeah, yeah. And <laughs> that's like trying to make German spaghetti. It's pointless <laughs> yeah. and impossible. But... I think it was what a lot of Americans were waiting for. Mm. And I suppose a lot of British people too. But the thing is, when you take that kind of high camp dance routine and you disconnect it from the winking transgressive thrill of 1970s camp, it Mm. just deflates and just sinks to the level of the conga line. You know (laughs) what I mean? It's just a bunch of blokes arsing about for no good reason. It's a bit depressing. And also, like, by 1983, that that dragged-out slow-motion rock and roll revival was more or less over, you know, like the tyranny Mm. of the old Teds and that generation, like, either working for a like an 18th rockabilly revival or doing that 70s thing of playing a heavily produced pastiche of 50s rock and roll that was yeah. sort of over but almost immediately we moved on to the next and even more insulting step towards the 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 burial of the spark of the rock and roll age which was this mid to late 80s obsession with that sort of airbrushed expensive yuppie approximation of the aesthetics of the 1950s and early 60s which was everywhere for years Mm. and i think this was one of the first examples it's like an athena print of a record yeah 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 yeah. um it's yeah it's perfectly well put together catchy song but it it turns my stomach a bit it's like all that stuff does like i used to live in the sticks right and we wanted to like when i was on the dole and i had a couple of mates we were just hanging around and we wanted to live a sort of cafe society we wanted to go into a cafe and be intense and all that which is just as much of a pose but Mm. it's what we wanted to do in Woolworths. yeah right well exactly but a bit later (laughs) on um they opened a cafe near where we lived, which Ooh. did free refills of coffee. <gasps> so we went there. But that was a policy which we single or we mob handedly ended by <laughs> sitting in there for five hours <laughs> while smoking 300 filterless camel mm. uh, for about five days in a row. But it was horrible because it, it was a real late 80s, early 90s type coffee shop with fucking James Dean. Boulevard and Broken Dreams poster and like Marilyn Monroe, you know. And we're sitting there, like the genuine scuzzballs and depressed, fucked up chain smokers like James Dean, right? And these fucking yuppies are trying to get us out of their glorified calf because we're putting off the other yuppies, (laughs) you know, uh, on account of being like that, but still alive. Yeah. And I'll admit it, (laughs) slightly less good looking. Yeah. Um, Alison Moyer wants to do a video in there, for fuck's sake. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Sounds like a good place. It sounds like Uncle Mo's family feedback. Um, 
But no, I mean, the thing is, it's odd with, with... I mean, I've spoken to Americans about Billy Joel for some reason. Don't ask why. It was just a long night. But um, <laughs> he's got a very skewed regional fan base when Billy Joel starts off in the 70s. Yeah. Kind of, which does yeah. have that ordinary Joe aspect to it. You know, the working to middle class suburbs of the whole kind of Boston, New York, Philadelphia, Washington, Northeast corridor mm. was his kind yeah. of place. But by this era, he's... He's bigger than that. And consequently, you know what I say? When I watched this video, I was reminded of another horrible thing from the 80s. And that's um, the dance scene featuring Tom Cruise in Risky Business. Oh. Um, <laughs> it's got that similar, ugh, just just repulsion for me. Um, yeah, yeah. So I just wanted to lodge that. <laughs> Thank Get out of my system. And why has he got body poppers in it? What the fuck is that about? Um... Because he likes them black people. Um, oh, right. I don't know why. Apparently, uh, you know Nicky Wire out of Manic Street Preachers? Yeah. Well, a, a, a secret that, that me and Pricey were once uh, uh, allowed in on is that, which I'm now going to share with the entire world. Yes. Apparently, when he was at school, he worked out his own full dance routine to this song. <laughs> no. And would perform it at school discos. Oh, my God. And I bet you any money that that performance was both less embarrassing than this one yes. and aesthetically better. I mean, the whole key to uh, to this record is the bellow, isn't it? It's one of those bellowing songs. You can be in the pub or whatever and it comes on. You don't have to know any of the lyrics because you're just going to wait there before you can go, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it is all about the O-Way. It is yeah. Tarzan Boy before Tarzan Boy, isn't it? <laughs> we can sit here and pick this song to fucking bits, and we have. But when it starts going, oh, that's it. You, you've surrender. Pretty much, yeah. Put your fucking hands up. You've lost. Well, yeah. You can't resist No, it. you it can't. It trundles over you. It trundles over you. You might remember, I don't know, the only lyrics I could ever remember were... Um, what is it? You know, I can't afford to buy her pearls, but maybe someday when my ship comes in, mm. um, I think is one of the lines. But beyond that, it's all about the oh woes. Yeah. And she's looking for a downtown man. And hey, that's what, that's I, what I am. am. Yes. <laughs> also, uh, maybe we're not really well positioned to appreciate this song. I think maybe we'd understand why this song is apparently so good. If we had the sort of voice where we say, It's a big rapper. It's a big. Stop him. He's getting away. Um, then you could truly understand Billy Perhaps, Joel. Yeah, yeah. So, Uptown Girl spent five weeks at number one, eventually conceding the throne to the next single on tonight. It would sell 975,000 copies in the UK by the end of 1983, ending up as the second biggest single of the year, one place below Karma Chameleon, one above Red Red Wine. CBS made amends for their earlier fuck-up by putting out Tell Her About It as a follow-up, and it's currently residing at number seven in the charts, eventually getting to number four in July. Wow, whoever would have predicted a number one single for Billy Joel? 
gold this year. Hey, it must be Christmas. I've been kissed by Annie Lennox under the mistletoe. Look, great stuff. Now, the number one this year, could you have predicted it two months ago? Because I sure as heck couldn't have done. They are a great group. They apparently have come from nowhere at all. They're going to great success. The Christmas number one for 1983, The Flying Tickets. Next to a girl who looks the dead spit of Jill, the woman that Alan Partridge took to the owl sanctuary, still can't believe that Billy Joel had it in him before lying that he's been kissed by Annie Lennox, pointing to his cheek at some lipstick that isn't there. That's disgraceful. You get sued for that sort of thing now. Yeah. He then expressed equal astonishment that the next actor this year's Christmas number one, The Flying Pickets, with Only You. We've already covered The Flying Pickets, the erstwhile members of a left-wing theatre group who performed songs a cappella in a play about a brass band and took it up as a part-time job in pubs, who covered Yazoo's debut single for their own debut in Chart Music 16. And after it crashed into the top 40 at number 9 and saw Uptown Girl Off, has been number 1 for three weeks. And here it sits as the Christmas number 1 of 1983. But oh dear, some of the Pulp Craze youngsters are not best pleased. Letter in the latest issue of Smash Hits. Just who are the Flying Pickets? They take brilliant songs like Space Oddity and Only You and practically ruin them. One of these people, the bold one, looks like a member of the Adams Family. Why don't these abnormal people leave the hits to the young <laughs> Shocking behaviour. Wow. How old are they now? But yeah, how did you feel about this being the Christmas number one? Interesting point to raise, I think that is. It's Christmassy. What the fuck? Like, what do you expect from a Christmas mm. number one, really? Christmas. I, I like my Christmas number ones to sound fucking chimey or jingly or snowy or any combination of these. And to, this, this mm. fulfills the brief. It's not my favourite Christmas number one ever, but it works as a, a, for this time of year. I don't remember this as a Christmas number one. I just remember it as a, a, a surprise big hit. When we were doing chart music's number 16, it was like, oh yeah, this, oh shit, this is Christmas number one. Fucking hell. All right, yeah, fair enough. Because, you know, it's 1983. This time last year, it was fucking Rene and Renato. <laughs> so, you know, I'm, I'm sitting there fully prepared for the Christmas number one to be shit. And we get this and it's like, Oh, fair dues. Why not? Fuck it. Yeah. How did you feel, Taylor? Was the Christmas number one a really important thing to you or not? Um, not really. My main memory of this record is my dad loved it. So he played it all the mm. time, which oh, didn't right. go down particularly well with me. Um, mm. I don't hate it. There's Look, there's a Huckleberry Hound cartoon where Huck is selling door to door and no one wants to buy anything off him. And he creeps up to a window where a bloke's sitting in an armchair and he tries to do his sales pitch through the window. Mm. Uh, and without looking round, the bloke slams the window closed and goes, who needs it? Um, <laughs> that's how I feel about the flying pickets version of only you. Mm. I'm surprised you didn't remember this as a Christmas number one, because I've never heard a record trying harder to sound Christmassy mm. that hasn't actually got sleigh bells on it. It's the way the echo is set up yeah, and the sort of sparkle effect on the voices, right? And that sort of icy sheen 
that they've put on the sound. Later, done again by E17 on Mm. Stay Another Day. Yeah. But to me, it sounds melancholic in a less appealing way because I sort of associate it with the last couple of real Christmases because of my age, right? 83 and 84 were like the last real Christmases for me Mm. before I got older and before I lost that childish susceptibility you know (laughs) to pretend magic an unpolluted excitement Mm. and the ability to imagine that christmas was a special time (laughs) yeah and there's some useful message of peace or greater (laughs) wisdom to be found there so to me it sounds like a sleek and quite ugly early 80s digital rendering of sparkle and (laughs) wonder you know and it just makes me Think of the end of that, you know, like the sounds have curdled along with the world. (laughs) It's just that when you see that well-rehearsed, imploring old Ted face looking Mm. directly into the camera, you know, with his puppy eyes, it's all a bit professional, isn't it? Do you know what I mean? It's a bit club circuit, you know. Mm. It's like you can can almost see the the cigarette machine and the the lit-up row of optics and the fitted carpet full of static, yeah. all, all solid with trodden in dirt, you know. And, and, and the ice bucket with a horse's head for a hand. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I know they were trying to be all man of the people mm. and unglamorous and mm. unambitious in their shot at the fucking Christmas number one. <laughs> um, but it just, it rankles a bit with me. Like I can take that sort of donkey jacket thing in pop music. Like, you know, like, yeah, we would be standing around a brazier Mm. outside a a car factory at five in the morning, you know, arguing with HGV drivers. But we're appearing live tonight at the Bloxwood (laughs) Lyceum, you know. I can take that when it comes from people whose music has some kind of rawness to it, you know. Mm. And, okay, you know it's a bit of an act and it's slightly played up, but not when it's these slick sort of sub-Vegas dudes, Mm. you know what I mean? Yeah. That's what I don't like about it. They were on Saturday Superstore earlier this month and were banned from giving away a tea towel with Karl Marx's <laughs> face on it as a competition prize. So, you know, there we go. Which tells you everything you need to know about the flying pickets in their brief moment of glory, right? <laughs> There's something slightly sad and embarrassing about them and their sudden appearance in the mainstream, which I think they would have liked to have seen as their rough-hewn, chartist, human voice music, uh, you know, breaching the walls of Radio 1. Mm. But really, it was a message of how how little they actually communicated and what an old-school variety act they really were, mm. you know, like a sort of new faces runners-up, you know. Yeah. And the, the idea that they would then be startled, that they were, oh, we want to give away a Karl Marx tea towel. It's like, no, what? what? You can't do that. Why did they... They not realise that they they're not being seen as a sort of revolutionary a cappella <laughs> band, you know, bringing marks to the masses. It's mm. just a bunch of old blokes who couldn't be bothered to learn how to play an instrument. 
<laughs> it really is the most Corbynite Christmas number one ever, I think. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> in yeah. all in all the ways. It is at once too professional and not professional enough, I think. Because it's quite studied the way that they all. It's like we're just a ragtag bunch of troubadours mm. who've. But I can't. I can't find any hate in my soul for them. Really, um, no. you know, they. They no. do. I mean, the thing is about them is if you were under forty now, and I showed you the, the video of this, and I said, "Look, this this was the Christmas number one in 1983." Your first question would be, "So, what sitcom were they in then?" <laughs> it looks like a middle-aged young ones that I haven't repeated on Dave yet because there's a quiffy one, there's a bold one, there's one who thinks he's Doctor Who, yeah. and then there's three mics. Yeah, yeah. I thought that guy. Uh, uh, I thought he looked more like one of the minor hobbits, the Peter Jackson Hobbit. <laughs> there's a guy who looks a bit like Barry Manilow in blue. And then there's yes. a guy. There's your main dude who um, has amazing mutton chops, which. Uh, you know, quite startling. Mm. And the biggest bolo tie I've ever seen with like a tiger's head on it. Nice. Which is it's is not a good use of, of tiger. Um and yeah, the, the sort of slightly sepulchral looking bald guy, he does look a bit like um Ingmar Bergman's death. You know. They could have had him, that would have been so good. They could have done so much with this format because it's just mm. like six guys all going ba 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 ba. They could have just had him mm. sitting at the back with a chess set. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And I do. He really I, does. Oh, I'm so sorry, mate, but you do. It would have been good, actually, just to have him not singing and just standing there and giving it like the Wilco Johnson stare. Oh, yes. <laughs> How great would that be with this exact record, and, with this exact, like, nan pleasing sound? And just get the cameraman to just, you know, sort of, he's cruising yes. past them all, give them all equal time, and then just like, zoom. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that would change everything for me. Death is coming for everything. <laughs> oh. So who bought this? Um, what, apart from my dad? Yeah. Mums and your dad. I think this is what was pissing off the, the, the Smash Hits reader. The, the impression that's being given off, if not by the band, but by the type of people who are buying it, is, oh, yeah, this bloody synth rubbish. Uh, it's not proper music. All we got to do is press a button. Uh, here, we've took one of your songs and we've made it proper. Yeah. I think they did it with, with a certain amount of humility. You know, like I've, I've, you know you're even yeah, talking yeah. about it. They just sort of were, were doing a, you know, it's always a little bit like you have to justify it. If you're going to do a cover, you've got to have like a good reason. But they just, you know, it's an interesting, most covers are very straight and don't really have any imagination and are often, it adds mm. nothing to the universe at all. And at least this has a thought in yeah. it, like what if this but that? You know, and it works. Mm. The original is one of the sparsest pop hits of the of the of the decade. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What they should be doing is adding more instruments to it, not less. But it's basically coffee table frog chorus, isn't it? <laughs> oh. That's what this is, yeah. and and I'm okay that that happened. You know, that's that's not a, that's not any great tragedy. I don't think. Yeah, stop making me like this more. <laughs> Sorry, I don't think they did cynically kind of go. Yeah, we're gonna we're we're gonna have a Christmas number one. Although I wouldn't mind if they yeah. did because who wouldn't want a Christmas number one? You're set for life. Yeah. Well, Vince Clark's set for life. Well, in this case. Oh well, I don't, well maybe not. There's too many of them. Don't have a band with with like this many people in it. It's not a good idea. But um, they did. Uh, they were on top of the pops um, like quite a few times with this because they didn't really expect you know. Mm. And they were like, "Do you want to be on this again?" Okay. Um, but they did. They were like, yes. "Do you want to dress up as snowmen?" 
So they got, they had that they were all standing there in, I mean, it is a little bit twee and it's a bit winsome and it's a bit cloying, but they did this really great thing uh, where they, they were in their sort of big bulgy snowman costumes. And then they were like, that they had, one of them had the idea to, to melt. So at the end of the song, they all just like crumpled down in their costumes <laughs> and it, it looks really great. So I kind of wish they'd, they'd just done that again, but. Um, we do, we do have that. It is in the, it is in the archives. Yeah, I don't know why, but going on Coronation Street seems like an undignified thing to me for an ex one hit wonder. You know, I mean, as opposed to opening a jacket spud emporium called Tater Station or something like that. <laughs> you know? Player Tater, yeah, or being fired from your job as a school caretaker for being caught pissing in the corridor which i could also imagine him doing i don't know why <laughs> imagine how shit it would have been as well to be in the, if you weren't him it would be one of the other flying pickets because your whole life you spent just standing in a crowd going ba 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 and no one gives a shit no one knows which one is you until one of your bars is flat <laughs> which instantly mm. makes the whole thing sound horrible <laughs> or even more horrible. And all the others turn around and glare at you. Fucking misery. I'd rather be around the brazier. So, only you would spend two more weeks at number one, eventually yielding to Pipes of Peace by Paul McCartney. The follow-up, a cover of the 1964 Ruby and the Romantic single When You're Young and In Love, got to number seven for two weeks in May of 1984, but diminishing returns set in. And although the Flying Pickets still exist today, there hasn't been an original member in it since 1994. Oh, <laughs> and of course, Margaret Thatcher said it was her favourite single once, deviating from her original choice of Telstar by the Tornadoes. All right, I take it all back. <laughs> you remember when Thatcher went on Saturday Superstore? I was on yes. the pop panel. and. What made me laugh was she said she hated the Style Council record because obviously mm. someone was there with her and had whispered in her ear, don't say yeah. you like this one. <laughs> um, <laughs> but she chose as her favourite record just some major label nonsense by some group, uh, I can't remember what they were called, Thrashing Doves, it might have right. been. Right. Um, that was never heard of before or since, except that they went in smash hits uh, purely to say... Uh, that they were utterly appalled that Margaret Thatcher liked them. And they just wanted to totally disown Margaret Thatcher on every level. They were terrified it was going to destroy their career and mm. they were somehow going to be thought of as Margaret Thatcher's pet pop group. Wow. That's um, like when um, that was in recent, uh, that happened again, didn't it? In, well, it happens all the time. Um, there's a whole catalogue of, of artists who have had to come out and say, no, I do not support Trump, despite the fact he's just blasted my biggest hit to a load of <laughs> a load of his death cult in the middle of Nevada. And Johnny Marr having to tell David Cameron that he's not allowed to like the Smiths. <laughs> I forbid him to like it. You like the Smiths? No, you don't. I forbid you to like it, which is great. I love that that's like what musicians get you might not get your royalties you might not get the life that you really hoped for but that's what you get if somebody <laughs> terrible likes your music you get to go no no you do not get to fuck
certainly going to be number one in 1984. Have a lovely rest of Christmas Day. Join us, Top of the Pops, on Thursday for the yearly review on BBC One. Stunning hat. Thank you, darling. Hope you've got some brilliant presents. Merry Christmas. Bien soon, Mum. The part of Dandini was played by Janice Long, and the part of Andy Peebles by Andy Peebles. Thank you. KC and the Sunshine Band from August of this year to take us out with Give It Up. We won't. We'll carry on having a good time and a big party. Bye-bye for now. Now wearing a cardboard pirate hat, Janice, Smith and Peebles realign at last. Bates wishes us a lovely rest of Christmas Day and shills part two of the end of year review on Thursday. Janice tells her mum she'll see her soon, Smith is distinctly unamusing and Peebles signs off with the final track of the night, Give It Up by KC and the Sunshine Band. We covered this single in chart music number 31 when it got to number one in August of this year, displacing Wherever I Lay My Hat, That's My Home by Paul Young. In that episode, we got a very tired and nervous-looking Harry Kayser looking lost next to some backing singers, but this time it's used as a sign-off music while it goes all party, party, party in the studio. Mm. Taylor, you covered this before. Is this any better in its natural setting of a nightclub scenario than when we witnessed it being emoted by a tired and nervous Harry Kayser? Yeah. I think it is. Yeah. It's the kind of record where having to look at a bloke who doesn't want to be there is, <laughs> it sort of detracts from it a bit. You know what mm. I mean? Um, there's some records where that would be a positive boon. Uh, this is not one of them. It's just the only way that this record makes any sense is if you just see a load of people who aren't very good at dancing, dancing to it. Yeah. Mm. I mean, this would be, you know, like the, the, the era club, my evil nemesis up the road in Oxford. <laughs> I mean... You know, this is a, a Nadir of like 1983. Trousers are never whiter, you know, tank tops are never <laughs> redder. You know, people are really rolling up their jacket sleeves, you know, getting on with the 80s, you know, sickening. You know, this sea of sort of athletic, airheaded extroversion. And that's the kind of thing, you know, Top of the Pops at this time, you know, from early 80s onwards, it's getting slightly milder maybe. But, you know, it really makes me miss those sort of 70s episodes where everyone's just got that kind of morose hangdog expression, like they're kind of, you know, shuffling towards the escalator at Leicester Square during Russia, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. Um, you know, so this, you know, I do find this kind of... You know, this extroversion did rankle, really. I mean, it's a fairly... It's a chipper track. It's a bit bread sauce for me. I mean, I was ser- at this mm. point, I was almost Stalinist in my kind of funk and contemporary sort of dance appreciation or whatever, and it wouldn't have probably passed muster in my personal star chamber. But um, it's interesting that, like, you know, there was a bit of nervousness about releasing this track at the time. The fact that they sort of don't call it mm. KC in the Sunshine Band, they call it KC as if to sort of take the disco edge off it because mm. it's... You know, the impact of, like, Disco Sucks and the movement and how unnerving it was to people, these fucking sort of, like, you know, Trump voters 30-odd, 30, 40 years earlier, you know, all mm. kind of staking their cultural claim. That was in America, though. Over here, we st- we were still up for a bit of disco. Oh, over here, yeah, it was fine. But, but I suppose that the decisions about releasing it, and I think they were against releasing it at yeah. some point, were made by American executives just thinking of, the American market, yeah, I mean, how it goes in England or New Zealand or wherever, yeah. I don't give a shit, I suppose. But, um, I mean, it's always sad. I only really realised it's retrospectively that Nile Rogers and Bernard Edwards out of Chic 
were really unnerved, deeply unnerved yeah. about the whole disco sucks thing. And and it makes the whole Bowie thing, you know, let's dance really on it's really a quite important thing in a way, you know, he's actually I didn't really appreciate it at the time because I just took disco and funk for granted, mm. but that he probably you know, it probably was a real kind of Philip, the fact that he was sort of validating yeah. Nile Rogers, the way that Bowie had validated Krautrock and like, you know, and made an immense difference there. And um, you know, there's real sort of added value there so although i don't you know i i, I suppose in 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 that context and i can kind of appreciate this track a little bit more but i'm not i'm not a huge fan i mean it's funny that it was um sung in appreciation of like nicky butt or whatever you know <laughs> nicky butt nicky <laughs> nicky butt and I, I you know that perhaps it's kind of its level there i suppose yeah. um but yeah, the whole partying thing. I mean, the implic the whole thing is it? Yeah, it's Andy Peebles. Yeah, and it's just like, yeah, we, we, we're signing off now, but we're going to be partying long into yes. the night. Says, no, you're no. not. You know, within 15 yeah. minutes on that floor, there'll be a floor manager ushering everybody to the exit, yeah. and someone, one of those like street sweeping vehicles with the big brushes, <laughs> going around the floor picking up bits of burst balloon. You know, within 10, 15 minutes, the idea that four or five hours later the party's still going to be yeah. on. You know. Yeah, the idea anyone would want to spend that long in the exactly. of Simon Bates. Yes. <laughs> yes, absolutely, yeah, and no bar. Yeah. <laughs> this basically puts the tin lid on what Top of the Pops is in late 1983s. It's gone from fake gig to fake nightclub. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But I used to think mm. give it up meant pack it in, oh, yeah. and now I've been fully Americanized. It's very obvious what he's asking the lady in question mm. to give oh, up, true, yeah. And, it, yeah, and it's yeah. not smoking. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, I only ever heard it that way as well. Yeah, yeah. me too. Yeah. Mm. yeah, or just like she was nagging him all the time, you know. And he's going, "Oh, give it up." Yes, turn it in. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, it's great warm up music for the Queen. I can imagine her um, doing a doing a stretches to this before she goes on and does a bit. <laughs> so, give it up would spend three weeks at number one before it was usurped by Red Red Wine by UB40. The follow up. You said you'd give me some more. Only got to number 41 in October of this year, and Harry Casey really did give it up in 1985. And that, my dears, closes the book on this Christmas episode of Top of the Pops. What's on telly afterwards? Well, BBC One kicks off with the Queen's Christmas message, and this year she's banging on about how skilled technology is. Then it's Blankety Blank with Sabrina Franklin, Roy Kinnear, Ruth Maddock, Patrick Moore, Beryl Reed, and Freddie Starr, followed by the 1950 Robert Newton film Treasure Island. After the news with Jan Lehman, it's a Christmas Jimmel fix it, where the top of the pops host who mysteriously hasn't appeared on chart music yet gets his backroom staff to help some youth to become a yellow coat, get two kids from a school for the blind to appear at the Horse of the Year show, and as an eight-year-old pitching up dressed as Santa. And he shows us his method of how to crack a walnut, which presumably involves tying them up in a boiler room of a nightclub in Leeds for a few hours just to soften them up. <laughs> After a Songs of Praise special from Peterborough Cathedral, it's the two Ronnies with special guest Elton John and a one-off movie-length episode of All Creatures Great and Small. At half past nine, it's the episode of Only Fools and Horses where Del and Rodney's waste man of a dad turns up and ponces off the family. Yeah, the only reason they weren't showing the episode of Only Fools and Horses where they dress up as Batman and Robin again is that it hadn't been made yet. Yeah, another reason why 1983 is better than 2020. 
<laughs> after the news, it's better late than never, David Niven's last film. And after the spinners at York, they turn it in at 20 past 12. BBC Two has just started the book game, where Anthony Burgess and Jermaine Greer have to guess the book that's had an extract taken from it. Then it's a repeat of the documentary series The Great Palace, The Story of Parliament. After Henry's Cat, it's the 1944 Judy Garland film Meet Me in St. Louis. Then Robert Powell talks over some footage of animals dealing with winter in the natural world. After the news, it's two and a half hours of the opera version of Cinderella from Glyndebourne. Then it's the Queen wanging on about space shuttles or summits. And they finish off with Norman Wisdom and Yakov Smirnoff on the Bob Monkhouse show and the 1933 Marx Brothers film Duck Soup. ITV have had the Queen on, saying, Have you seen what they can do with satellites today? It's fucking mental. What will they think of next? <laughs> Jesus. Then it's the UK TV premiere of Superman. Yeah, punching a perfectly circular hole in blankety blanks ratings. <laughs> yes. yes. Followed by Nottingham's gift to baby Jesus this year, the Bullseye Christmas Special, <sighs> featuring Eric Bristow, Keith Deller and Maureen Flowers, with Kenneth Kendall, Anne Diamond and Judith Hannes the non-dark players, and Anne Aston helping Tony Green out. After the news, it's a royal concert of carols, where a hospital choir singer Prince Charles and Lady die, then it's Play Your Cards Right, and then Jimmy Tarbuck's Christmas All-Stars, where Gappy Tooth Tory Cunt interacts with Bruce Forsyth, Mike Yarwood, Max Bygraves, Cannon and Ball, Comrade Shaker, Bonnie Tyler, Michael Barrymore, the Game for a Laugh team, and links up via satellite with Andy Williams, the Four Tops, the Temptations, David Hasselhoff, and Robert Wagner and Stephanie Powers. Oh, and Freeway. No Kenny Lynch. No, no Kenny Lynch. Tonight's film is Revenge of the Pink Panther, and after the news, it's The King's Christmas with the King Singers. That's followed by Benson, and they close out the day with a different Christmas, where the radio critic of the Daily Telegraph listens to Jimmy Savile banging on about how he's been spending the day with the foul hag Thatcherax as patients of Stoke Mandeville look on. Mm. Channel 4 has the animation short Sky Whales, about hunting on a distant planet, followed by animals fucking and eating each other in Alaska in fragile Earth. Then it's the 1953 film Monsieur Hulot's Holiday. Hey, yeah, listen, there was a whole season of, uh, or a short season of Jacques Tati films on Channel 4 this Christmas. And I know this Mm. because I saw a load of them because a weird teacher at our school taped them all on the school VCR and showed them to us, Mm. like as if we'd be interested, you know, except I I was. I got the same Um, thing a few years earlier. Yeah, and, and, and I really feel so bad. We're in the sixth form, and he took us to a screening in Monsieur Hulot's Holiday, and we just didn't get it, idiots that we were. And he was so crestfallen. He yeah. thought we were kind yeah. of a particularly bright, you know, he thought it was a dead poet society. He thought we had a particularly bright crop here. And we weren't. We just didn't think, well, this isn't the goodies, is it? Um, you know, we were such yeah, idiots, yeah, yeah. such idiots. <laughs> um, and I really, you know, I kicked yeah. myself. Like that. I never got to apologise to Paul Brooks, my old French teacher, um, because he was so sad. I've been building it up for weeks. I mean, it was probably was a mistake as well. But we just didn't get oh. this kind of 
alternative vocabulary of comedy and slapstick or whatever. We're just you deserve that Stockhausen prank. I did. Oh, totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now you know how he felt. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Oh, yeah. This teacher at my school was a was a bit of a weirdo. To be honest, he was really jovial and friendly with the kids, and then he once threw a table at some jabbering lads at the back of the class, and all a table yeah, he almost got fired. Mm. That was the beauty of the the eighties and the seventies and back all the way because people had the same issues and personality <laughs> disorders uh, and problems that they got today, but mostly undiagnosed. Mm. So you just had to get on with it. And that was just part of life. And in responsible professional positions as well. Yeah. Yes. But I mean, to be fair yeah. to the bloke, his, his name was actually Mike Hunt. Oh um, no. must have left some sort of mark on the man. Oh, you know what I mean? Mm. Imagine if he was having a drink in a bar. And you had some <laughs> urgent message you had to get to him, so you rang the bar. Mm. Like, how many times mm. would the barman just put the phone down? <laughs> mm. Especially if your name was Alcoholic. Yes. <laughs> or uh, mm. Duncan McCockiner. <laughs> it's like some, oh, who do you think I am? Infuriating. After another chance to see the Queen's Christmas message, where she shows us how to make her telly say fuck off over and over again on her new Sinclair Spectrum, it's twice nightly. Oh, a yes. one-hour special featuring the Baron Knights. Taylor, I believe you've seen this. Yeah, I, I own that. It's, I tell you, it's oh. edge-pushing comedy. Uh, the, <laughs> the edge of what can realistically be called a joke. Um, it's very good. You do want to assassinate them all. Uh, there's this. So- they do a song, like the theme song, that goes all the way through it and keeps coming back. That goes, uh, "Here come the knights! Here come the knights on their trusty steeds." Uh, was it saving damsels in distress and always doing good deeds? Which is just plainly a lie. Uh, I, yeah, fucking butch. What's he called? Butch and. Duke mm. de Mont. Yeah. Got to feel like you know them all as close personal friends after that. It's horrendous. After the news, it's Father's Day Christmas special. The sitcom starring coffee masturbator John Alderton, but not Diane <laughs> Keane. Then it's the latest episode of the drama series Struggle, about a London borough who renounces capitalism, starring Tim Piggott Smith. Oh, Merry Christmas, everyone. <laughs> At half eight... It's the British TV premiere of The King of Comedy yes. with Robert De Niro. Fucking yes. hell. I, I would have seen that. Yeah, yeah. That's one of my favourite films, except that yeah. my first ever proper adolescent post-puberty crush was on a girl who I now realise looked exactly, and I mean uncannily, like Sandra Bernhardt in King of Comedy. Right, mm. I swear, if I showed you a picture of her, you'd be like, fucking hell. Is that not a publicity picture of Sandra Bernhardt from the early 80s? I didn't know this at the time because I hadn't seen the film, but it means that now I can never fully enjoy this truly great motion picture because I feel a bit freaked out and a bit uncomfortable. Like more than that film is meant to make you feel a bit freaked out and uncomfortable. Mm. Not least by the fact that I don't even fancy Sandra Bernhardt in it, which makes no logical sense at all. I would have watched that broadcast. I vividly remember actually what, the first time I can possibly say this, but I vividly remember watching that. Me too. Oh, and another positive thing about it, the the feuding members of the clash that you mentioned yes. earlier will be reunited briefly, at least. Oh, yeah, yeah. They'll yeah. all be watching because they're extras in it for about six seconds. Yes. Yeah. 
And it finishes in time for you to get to the fridge and back before Duck Soup on BBC Two. I mean, this is not a bad Christmas day, is it? It's not not at all. No, no. Then, ta-da-da, Peter Brook's Paris Cabaret, a review with some opera singers. And they finish off with Peace on Earth, where Flora Robson and Laurence Olivier bang on about Jesus for an hour. Fucking hell. (laughs) This flies in the face of everything my dad used to say. At Christmas Day, my dad had gone to the pub and get pissed up. Mm. I think I mentioned this before, but I'll say it again because mm. hey, it's Christmas. Got to get the old traditions out. Yep. My dad had sat at the Christmas dinner table, and all of a sudden he go, "What about fucking Jesus then? <laughs> <laughs> Why don't people go on about Jesus anymore? Everyone's forgot about the cunt." <laughs> and my mum would say, "Oh, for fuck's sake, shut up, Colin! You're ruining my fucking Christmas." <laughs> And when, as soon as that happened, I knew it was Christmas. <laughs> oh, marvellous. Yeah. So, yeah, my, my dad should have been made to watch Laurence Olivier and Flora yeah, Robson yeah. talking about yeah. Jesus. That would, that would have sated him, no doubt. Yeah, yeah. So, me dears, what are we talking about on the street? Oh, who the fuck's that? Hello. Yes, it's Tyre here. <laughs> Right, and team chart music, let's all gather around the microphone and, and finish this episode off. So, what are we talking about on the street, on our BMXs, this afternoon? Oh, man, um, we're talking about a lot. I'll be talking about MJ, I think. Mm-hmm. I'll be talking about um, Men at Work, Yeah, my unfeasible love of them. <laughs> I'll be talking about the strange, glowering presence of Andy Peebles. Oh, yes. Um <laughs> And I'd, you know what, 83, I think by then, I'm not saying I was hip, but I think I'd probably actually be talking about how much I don't like um, Duran anymore. Ooh. Um, yeah, oh yeah, I think, I'm not saying I got in there early, because the whole world was in love with them, but I think, that, yeah, it was starting to fray by that point. So a lot, of, a lot of positive things to talk about, but hints of darker days to come, where I fall out of love with that centre of pop, if you like, especially mm. with Duran. This is, the, this is the time, yeah, that I start turning on those guys. <laughs> Which would be massively cemented later, of course, when my wife revealed to me that she went out with Nick Rhodes for oh, a bit. Oh, yes. Um... <laughs> And snogged him in a Birmingham coffee bar, Ooh. which I always bitterly resented. But, you know, she always went for pretty boys. <laughs> <laughs> I reckon the breakdancers in the Freeze IOU performance, yeah. I'm not going to say took off in my school. Um, I think everybody sort of stood around and tried to do a bit of body popping. Everybody attempted the moonwalk and failed. Um, there were a couple of kids who actually got into the full-on sort of spinning around on your back business. Mm. And seeing um, those guys with, with Freeze would probably have been the catalyst for a lot of them. I would say total eclipse of the heart. Yeah. Trying to decode the, the symbolism that goes nowhere and just uh, doing, our, doing our best Bonnie Tyler by gargling with gravel off the street, <laughs> which is the kind of thing that you could get away with doing in 1983. I would at the time have decried Bonnie Tyler, but um, yeah, but you know, I was in, I was accused of being narrow-minded. Oh, yes, by you? somebody that, uh, yeah, you know, that it's just like you know, you you know, like you don't listen to you know, this is Oxford, you don't listen to Meatloaf, you don't listen to Bonnie Tyler, you're so narrow-minded. I didn't, I listen to everything from <laughs> from the SOS band to fucking <laughs> Stockhausen. What's up with you? No, um, but I probably was a bit narrow-minded. Yeah, I don't remember the Christmas Day episodes really getting talked no. about. Just consumed. But, um, I mean, they were more sort of short-term nostalgia than something you'd go and discuss. But if I was going to discuss something, 
I guess it would either be Mike Smith's pathetic half assed <laughs> abandoned drag act, uh, or who kept giving Janice doubles when she asked for singles. <laughs> and what are we getting with the record tokens on Boxing Day? Oh, 1983. I, I, I'll just tape them off the oh, radio. Oh, come on, Taylor. Do it properly. Yeah, probably all of them, except Flying <laughs> Pickets and Eurythmics and UB40 and Billy Joel and KC and the Sunshine Band and Shaky and Bucks Fizz. All the rest. <laughs> oh, mate. Man, if I've got a big enough record token, I am buying. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm buying MJ. I'm buying Eurythmics. Uh, Adam Band, Heaven 17. Um, probably buying Bowie as well. Men at Work. Ooh. Um and I've got to admit, I'll probably buy Billy Joel as well. And and despite what other people I know yeah. have said in chart music's passing about Casey and the Sunshine Band, I freaking love that tune. So it'd be Casey as well. So yeah, I'd have a right caboodle and bundle um, at nice price prices, hopefully. It's Christmas, so I would hazard we'd get more record tokens and maybe we could even blag mm. um, a copy of Total Eclipse of the Heart a copy of Down Under and maybe even a copy of All Night Long, Ooh. which is festive in its own way. You know, yeah. sets the tone. It's much more of a New Year track, actually. Yeah, Kwanzaa. Isn't it? It's like it's it's going to take you into the New Year. But you would want to get, if you had to choose, it would have to be Total Eclipse of the Heart for sheer pound-for-pound pound value. I could be quite real about this because I can remember, out of all those records, I only bought one, and it was Heaven 17, Temptation. Uh. Yeah, Let's Dance, because I haven't got it yet. Um Billy Jean, because it's Billy Jean. Mm. Um, and um, although, you know, it's strange, I'd already got the Comsat Angels album with a track called Baby, which has got that exact bass line oh, um, a couple of years earlier. So I'd have like smugly pointed that out. <laughs> and All Night Long, which is, you know, it, it, it's wonderful. And why didn't Lionel Richie go more up tempo more of the time? Because, you know, it's a, it's a beautiful piece of work. And what does this episode tell us about 1983? First of all, that 1983 is a lot better than we give it credit for. Mm. And secondly, I think that dance music is coming. Um, there are a few hints of it through this episode. And uh, I, I think uh, it's, it's, you know, you can kind of see it's the coming thing. Yeah. It's really tricky. I don't know what it does tell us about because it's like it's not a normal episode. It's a kind of it's a review of the thing. I mean, it, it's you really get a sense of how scattered and, um, you know, erratic any year is from an episode like this. Mm. Um, But I think it it says good things about what people were trying to do and what people were going to be prioritising in 1984, which is hedonism and bohemian nonsense, terrible synth experiments, all all things of which I approve. Hmm. For me, culture, the world, all of my hopes and dreams were going to the dogs. No! But... um, but I look at things in a slightly modified way these <laughs> days. I think anybody that's trying to do anything in the 80s um, gets a sort of thumbs up from me, and, um, you know, including Bonnie Tyler, even to a degree, Duran Duran, you know? Ooh. Yeah, when you brush the, the caked mud off 1983, it's still quite shiny underneath, isn't it? Um, mm. Even though the, I mean, the general health of, of pop is visibly beginning to fail, but there's not that much evidence of it here, unless you look, too closely like we do hmm. um it suggests a slight lie in a sense 
Um, what it suggests is pop's fucking fantastic. Yeah. There's loads of great records, <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, but that's the condensing power and, and uh, fallacy, in a way, of a Christmas episode. It, it, it can go one of two ways, a Christmas episode. It can compile all the shite and, um, you know, reveal that sort of side of things. But I think this episode, actually, it, to an extent, the best of 83 is mm. all here. It is all here. It just hinted at, even suggested that it is all here. So it's actually a very optimistic episode, if you yes. like. Yes. Um, so it tells us great things are ahead, um, and it's a lie because they're not. It's all going to get terrible. But yeah, that's what it tells us. And that midday's is the end of this very special episode of Chart Music. All that remains for me to do now is bung out the usual promotional flange. www.chart-music.co.uk facebook.com slash chartmusicpodcast reach out to us on twitter at chartmusictotp money down the g-string patreon.com slash chartmusic thank you very much Taylor Parks yeah bye Al, sorry about the carpet don't worry it'll It'll come out with Thank you, and thank you for the eggnog. <laughs> Tell very much, sauce. David Stubbs. God bless you, Neil Kulkarna. No worries, Al. Thank you, Sarah B. You're welcome, and a happy new year to you, Al. Well played, Simon Price. You're welcome, and a happy new year to all the pop-crazed youngsters. My name's Al Needham. Fuck off, 2020. You were fucking shit! <laughs> <laughs> Sharp music. Great big owl. <coughs> Hi, Roger, it's Brian. Um, look, mate, an unbelievable opportunity has presented itself for us. We've been asked to speak to a lot of people at the Podcast Stop Festival at the Kentish Town Forum on February the 13th, 2021 at 2 p.m. I'll be there. I think you should too. Okay, cheers, Rog. Bye. Hello, Brian. It's Roger here. Um, So that's the Podcast Stop Festival at Kentish Town Forum at 2pm on Saturday, February the 13th, 2021, to speak to a lot of people. Okay, mate, well, that sounds like uh, it'll be loads of fun, and I really can't see anything going wrong at all. Okay, mate, see you there. Bye-bye. Brian and Roger. Live at the O2 Forum Kentish Town for the Podcast Stop Festival on Saturday the 13th of February. Tickets are available at livenation.co.uk and ticketmaster.co.uk. In association with the British Market Research Bureau and the pop craze Patreon people, the chart music top 40 for 2020. <laughs> At number 40 in this year's chart music top 40, ATV Eyes. Yeah. At number 39, it's Quo Waddy Wadde. A star who had his moment in 2020. At number 38, Fine Time Fontaine. In at number 37, Working Class Youth of Newcastle. <laughs> This year's number 36 is Billy Preston and Rye Vita. At number 35, the Horseshoe of Shame. In at number 34, it's the ragamuffin sound of Lion Bellend. 
The number 33 sound of the year belongs to Chirpy Human Cerberus. Mm. <laughs> At number 32, the old sailor. <laughs> number 31, Pig Wanker General. Of course. Into the top 30, and at number 30 is Priapic Price. Yes. At number 29, 15 Hitlers. In at number 28, Mr. Neil Kulkani's stomach. Number 27, the posh grabs from the nice estate. At number 26, Flaky Pastry. <laughs> Hanging in at the number 25 spot is B.A. Cunterson. Oh, yes. In at number 24, the Bombers Conga. In at number 23, the English Rock Defence League. At number 22, it's Rock Expert David Stubbs. (laughs) Yay. And at number 21, resides Frumpy (laughs) Pompey. Into the top 20, and at number 20, it's the sound of panties. At number 19, it's this year's chart music Christmas number one, James Galway's flute of VD. (laughs) In at number 18, the treacherous step. Burning hell. At number 17, it's Simon Price's arsehole material. Number 16, Dusty Shelbyville. A new talent at number 15, Dean Spunk presents a tribute to Ollie Murs. (laughs) At number 14, Danger Freaks. In at number 13, Suicide featuring Donna. (laughs) At number 12, C-Fax Data Blast <laughs> and the number 11 position belongs this year to Romo Ralph Wiggum <laughs> into the top 10 and at number 10 is Lesbian Door Factory yes. number 9 in Selvis Costello <laughs> Number eight, Taylor Parks' 20 Romantic Moments. Still going strong. It's been a huge year for the number seven act, Spiteful Armoured Bollock. At number six, Noel Edmonds' Gas Disco. (laughs) Time for the top five, and at number five is Chip Pan's People. (laughs) At number four... Dave D, Creeper, Twat and Cunt. Thrusting all the way to number three, it's Jeff Sex. Yeah. And ramming its fist into the number two slot, here comes Jizzle. Which means... Britain's number one. 
for the second year running at the top of the chart music end of year chart. It could only be this year's number one, Bomberdon. Yes. This year and every We year. are chart music and we believe in sex and looking good with our own brand of podcasting. Happy New Year. See you in 2021. And if you do nothing else next year, stay pop crazed. Yeah.